Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Always amazing to have someone back on the show today. Beth Rudden will be joining us. Beth is the CEO and chairwoman of Bast AI. She's been on the show a handful of times in a relatively short order, and that's partly because the world of AI has been kind of exploding around us in good and bad ways. Beth, welcome back to Trending in Education. Michael, it's so good to be back. Thank you for having me. It's amazing to have you, and you have been busy. You have a new book out, which is called AI for the Rest of Us, which is really building on some of the conversations we had before where how can we make this stuff accessible? How do we get it so that folks can actually lean in rather than check out to the really amazing and confusing and scary world around us? Can you catch us up on what's been going on in your world and maybe as a jumping off point, why you wrote the book? And we can take it from there. The book was definitely a labor of love. Phaedra and I, we started some of the very first trustworthy AI center of excellences. And, you know, as we have been going around the world ever since 2018, 2019, when we started these things, we're not hearing the same voice or the same narrative that we're offering in the book. Mm. And the narrative is pretty simple. We know that AI will impact every single human on earth, every industry, every role, every job. So if we want a representative sample of humanity using, building, growing, training, understanding AI, we need 1.6 billion people. And so we are far short. And so what we intended with the book is a rallying cry of getting people to understand that AI is something that everybody can access. Everybody right now has access to AI. And it is something that we can teach in simple ways. And we did our best to really make people understand, you know, why it is their responsibility to put their own story, their culture, their representation, <laughs> we need more because, you know, the current AI models are not variant enough. They don't have enough diversity. And the problem that we have is that a lot of the hype right now with the machine learning models or the models that have been creating chat GPT have been using, you know, dubious sources in that you know, everything that we have in humanity is not represented on the internet, not even mm. close. And so it really only represents a single world view of a very small amount of people. But because there's so much data, people are confusing quantity with quality. Mm -hmm. So they're not understanding that data has not been sanitized or understood well enough and, you know, there is because of the powerful algorithms with the powerful GPUs, the graphical processing units and the powerful computers, people are mistaking the understanding that it has. These models do not understand. They just generate. Mm -hmm. And so that is something that I've been like, you know, banging on that drum because I need people to think about. How can we use the things that have already been created in a way that makes sense and in a way that that invokes safety and makes it better for humans? So the book itself is something that we hope people will understand that it's the start of a conversation. And we want that conversation to be for the rest of us, for everybody on Earth. 
And we have so many different examples of both models that we do not want to follow. And there's so many of those. It was actually really difficult to write the stories that keep us up at night chapter. And that was just because the amount of stories and understanding that is coming from the use of these models and the release of these models without, you know, without understanding how the people are going to react to them without testing, without, you know, regulation or precision regulation that even enforces some of the existing privacy <laughs> and IP and yeah. all of the things that, that we know our laws, it's like, you know, all these things just got released, a bunch of pile of money got put on, on to a lot of people. And it's giving your 18 year old a couple million dollars and saying, go wild, right? you know, <laughs> with without knowing that they have accountability and responsibility to the community to pay taxes, right. and to be a participant and a participating member. So I find the world that we're living in, it really chaotic. And I'm hopeful that our book, you know, the story that kept us up at night is hopefully really well balanced with all of these other models that we can follow that show we can reward cooperation. We can reward, you know, things that tap the power of limits, understanding how we can go all the way to the limit of something and then hold back because we understand what that limit is. That's mm -hmm. powerful. And, you know, there's so many things that we can understand through. And I use a lot of biomimicry and a lot of nature to right. show people, hey, why don't we look at how photosynthesis works? Because mm -hmm. it's a beautiful, very efficient <laughs> set of algorithms. And like, instead of doing things in the extreme, maybe bring it back a level and then show how we can distribute both the understanding and the utilization. And I think I sound like a total hippie. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we might need that perspective. I remember on our previous conversation, you were talking about the book Braiding Sweetgrass, looking more at indigenous relationships yep. with your ecosystem and with your environment, that's another strand that is out there in our culture nowadays, even our global culture. There is growing awareness around the global environmental crisis that we're in. And I know you have a background in the social sciences and, you know, archaeology and, you know, anthropology. Those things do really need to be woven into the conversation in more integrated ways. That's also where the power of storytelling and the power mm -hmm. of representation, you know, mm -hmm. having new voices, having yeah. a broader spectrum of voices. When you were talking about the imbalance in the representation of the large language model data mm -hmm. sets, it reminded me I was recently having a conversation about stem cells, where it's the same mm. problem where a lot of folks who have gone to get mapped for their stem cells tend to be Caucasian and they're overrepresenting that population, it does make sense that these large language models trained on the internet so far is over-indexed on white people, white men, you know, and that's where having thought leadership and perspective from folks like yourself who are talking about things like human-centered AI, responsible AI, explainable AI, what kind of frameworks do you think are useful for folks if they're trying to wrap their head around what's going on out there and maybe where they should focus their attention? 
Absolutely. So we don't actually know the representation. And that's part of the problem is that when these large language models are confabulating or creating a prediction that is an error, it's often because it doesn't know the context because the data has been removed from the context. But we don't know because nobody's talking about it. And worse, we're not able to inspect what's going on. And so part of what I'm offering as an alternate narrative is think about how you could feel if you could put your own data into a conversational AI and have a conversation with it. And this is what I've been doing with BAST is we are building platforms for people to build their own AI so that they can experience the explainability of understanding that the prediction that the AI came up with comes from this paragraph on this page of the text that you ingested. Mm -hmm. And why I'm so desperate for people to see that everything needs not only explainability and transparency, not just for adoption, but also for debugging. <laughs> And making it useful for practical applications so that it has the auditability. Right. And if you look on my website on BAST, you know, the things that I am looking to do with AI is to augment medics in the field or to augment nurses or to augment, you know, people who are in theater. And the purpose of using AI is to augment a human. In my case, I'm intrepid about being able to have predictions that are so precise that the purpose is to reduce the cognitive load of the medic who might have multiple casualties with multiple injuries to deal with. Yeah. Or a nurse who is in a rural place that doesn't have access to a trauma center, so they have to increase that golden hour. And there's so many different things that we can do with this technology once explainability and transparency are made as a, as a religion for every data scientist to do because mm. it's healthy. It's mm. good for you to know what you put in is what you get out. <laughs> and I don't know how to say it simpler than that. And yeah. frankly, one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about today is there's an entire country that is modeling this. In China, you can't build AI systems and AI models without explainability and transparency. Mm. And that is accelerating their ability, the Chinese's ability to use AI in educational systems, in industry, in businesses. What China does not have is our rules for privacy and security and truly where not only does data, you know, it, does data really belong to the creator, data and insights should belong to the creator with privacy and security. But if you also look at combining that with the understanding that every single piece of AI should augment people as opposed to replace them. Right. And then you combine that with the explainability. So there's three principles that I want people to understand. And these three principles are what IBM set forth way back in 2016, 2017. In case folks missed our previous conversations, a lot of your experience was really being a leader, a pioneer, a founder, a lot of IBM's 
data science program and running that for many years before branching out on your own. But that is where you have deep domain expertise. Folks probably picked up on it through the conversation, but if they hadn't, we got into that in previous conversations to get Beth's backstory. This is not your first rodeo. I've been thinking about this for a very long time. And more importantly, I've been thinking about how do we increase the knowledge of what we are doing with these AI systems to the most amount of people. And the three principles are data and insights belong to the creator. All AI systems or any intelligent systems really need to be made transparent and explainable. Mm -hmm. And all systems should augment people. Is this like Asimov's rules of robotics? This is Rudin's rules of AI. I, I do like it. It does seem very, three is a good number. And there's a lot in those three things. I recently read Jenny Rometty's Good Power book. And she was the one that really established rules of three, as well as like, she was the one that really championed, you know, these three principles. And I mean, I, I remember the ability to really think through the reason why you want AI to augment people is because you want to make it a tool that you understand how to use in order to make human beings enabled and empowered as opposed to replace them. Because if you go into any human social ecosystem and say, here's a tool that will replace you, mm -hmm. you're yeah. not going to get adoption. Right. And adoption is the single biggest thing that you need in order to make the tool accessible and useful. And to that end, I'd really like to talk about like the operationalization of artificial intelligence. And I've done a lot of writing on this. This is my area of expertise as an engineer is how do we take this brand new AI model and then how do we flow data over it? Mm -hmm. And then how do we have a feedback loop for it to learn? And that's missing. And people haven't experienced that. If you go to chat GPT and it tells you something false about who you are, how right. do you fix that? Do you put a thumbs down? Is that your only you know, mm. recourse? This is where when we build AI models and the AI models that are language models, there are many of us who have spent, you know, decades understanding linguistics and semantics and syntax that have nothing to do with machine learning. Right, right. When I first started learning about data scientists, I think that data scientists, because their language is mathematics for the most part and linear algebra, there's this like, you know, almost entitled, I, I will not be so kind, but like data scientists think they know everything about yeah. everything. Yeah. <laughs> And really the Dunning-Kruger impact is so real there where, yeah. you know, the Dunning-Kruger bias is where if you're an expert in something, you typically say, I don't know anything about it because you know how much you don't know. Yeah. And if you don't know anything about something, you're like, oh yeah, I totally could. I got linguistics, no problem. I'm going to create these large language models. I know linear algebra. I'm great. Yeah. yeah. So it's, a, it's just such a dichotomy. And then... I mean, Michael, to get a model into a production state, you need an information system that flows data over that model, mm -hmm. which requires 
software architecture and software engineering. And software engineering is a deep, deep, deep domain <laughs> that very few people have really understood front to back. And it's still evolving. Right. And it's evolving into cloud services and DevSecOps. And then you have like your data architects that have to understand what are the data architectures that you need for which type of domain. Yeah. It is a complex thing that requires many different people to put into production in a way that can be changed, can be adopted, can be understood by a wide range of people, can continuously improve, continuously be deployed, continuously be tested. <laughs> These are all the things that I feel like the adult in the room a lot going, actually, you can't just stick an iframe in front of chat GPT and call it good. Because what happens, you know, from your liability sake, when it gives a false piece of information and back to what I'm doing is I use all of these different tools and techniques in order to create an AI system that has the test retest reliability and the practical application of testing so that you can see the work and know that it's going to give the consistent answer every single time. Yeah. And that's what I want people to know you can do. Mm -hmm. 10 years from now, we're going to look back and go, oh my goodness, people believe that it was okay that AI just lied. That right. is not okay. Right. And we can do better. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's kind of what I wanted to get into a little bit, too, because uh, I haven't seen any of the new episodes, but I heard there's a new season of Black Mirror out now. Yeah. And I feel like we're all yeah. kind of living in a season of Black Mirror on our day to day. So maybe a little bit of overkill. But there's a lot of anthropomorphizing that happens mm -hmm. around AI. There's a lot of, you know, scary sci-fi that is part of what's portrayed out there. What I like about what you're putting out there is that, first off, the stories aren't all negative. Like I, I know you've been able to lean into some of the more positive framings, places where AI is actually making a difference. But then the other piece that I think is important is to get beyond the idea that this massive size of the data set, it is a little bit of, you know, male bravado, you know, chest thumping where like we've captured all the data in the world, therefore it's the best. Where at the end of the day, you want to know you know, getting back to what you're talking about, you want to know what fed your model. And then when you get a surprising result, you know, don't think of it as, oh, my AI is tripping now. You know, instead it's more, even like literally tripping. It's like something led to that output. Mm -hmm. yep. If I can't understand why, then I'm sort of seeding my ability to drive here. And it does feel like we're at a very dangerous moment in human development, just to put a little bit of fear back in the, in the audience, where like, if we don't figure out how to ride this wrong, we don't figure out how to like steer, I feel like there's more risk perhaps than there was even six, eight months ago. So I'm going to be prescriptive. And, you know, what we can do with AI is it is a deep listening tool. It is a tool to be able to see our 188 cognitive biases. It, it allows us to detect patterns and it allows us to see these patterns in vast amount of data. If I said, Michael, imagine a data set of a million records. 
that's meaningless to you. Yeah. But to artificial intelligence, it can detect patterns that can be visualized or that could be, you know, that you could have a conversation with. Yeah. And that's super fascinating. And if we can, if we can turn it to, you know, understanding how can we be curious about, you know, what, what happens, the Maori are one of my favorite examples where they are using large language models in order to codify their Maori language. Mm. And, you know, what if every, and this is something that I've dreamed of for a while, like what if every, and it's not that you even need large language models, you just need enough data to have the AI be able to detect patterns in that particular language. Right. And so if you had like, you know, a Brooklyn version of a language model that mm. your community owned, that you guys are like, you know, these are Brooklyn words. Forget about it. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, and then all of the people who said it and then like social network analysis, measuring things like reciprocity and, you know, how many people use that in a way to connect to other people. Yeah. There's a quote by a scientist, something like, there's a reason that we are connected in this space and time together, and it is a unifying reason. Mm. It is not a divisive one. <laughs> and, and I think that if we could invert the modality and more made the models that take more than they give back. So if you're taking all of the electricity in New York City in order to, or 15 swimming pools of water, to train a large language model once, there should be a reciprocation mm. for that use of the Earth's resources. And that goes back to really connecting the dots that we need to belong to this ecosystem and then learn to use AI to listen on frequencies we don't even have language for. Mm. Like I read one article about how plants emit a sound because I've always said plants scream at me when I don't feed them water. So we're using now AI to understand whales, to understand plants, to understand languages, bees. We're understanding that bees have emotive capability and there's so much more to discover. And that's where I want people to get into an exploration mode as opposed to a fear mode. Right. And the personification is completely, totally normal. That is who we are and that's how we do. And that's how we humans think of things is we can personify them so that we can have empathy. Yeah. And what I'm trying to figure out is like, how do we get people to, instead of using that as like, okay, well, if I'm going to personify this, Make it something that you want to interact with mm -hmm. and make it something that you're like, we talked earlier today about children, how, you know, our children, mine and, you know, my experiences, they get so much more interesting as they grow older mm -hmm. because they have all of these different viewpoints. And, you know, my children are people that I want to converse with and I want to talk to. Yeah. Why are we not doing this with AI? Like, right. you know, why are we afraid? In yeah. Who benefits from us being afraid? I think it's Jim and Cameron. I, I think I think it's <laughs> ever since the Terminator, it's kind of burned on our brains. But it is interesting to to think about how I'm always struck by how engineers and problem solvers, when they're confronted with error, 
their first response frequently, maybe after a swear word, is interesting. Yeah. It's like, that's ah, right. that's not what I was expecting. Yes. I'm actually going to expand my understanding, especially if I just pause. And it's like, it, I don't have to solve it right away, but I at least understand that there's a problem here. And to me, that does connect in a meaningful way to the explainability where mm -hmm. if you generally understand how things are going to go and something surprising happens, you can then learn from that difference. But if it all is sort of this magic, I liken it to a magic eight ball, but it is yeah. it's one that we revere too. It is kind of like the Oracle. It's like, oh, the AI told me this, where, you know, I, I love what you've said, where, you know, data is an artifact of human experience, where what the AI is saying is, at least thus far, is a result of human data that then has been trained through the AI to then reflect back to us. The other concern I have, though, is that it is going to start feeding off of its own stuff. And it does feel like we've kind of polluted the data set a little bit with the amount of generative AI junk that is getting you know, dumped out into the system nowadays. Well, we used to call it dark data or data that wasn't visible. And, you know, most in, especially in businesses, that's behind the firewall. Mm -hmm. And, you know, part of why I'm building, you know, AI platforms for businesses and teams and individuals is to have them be able to understand that dark data. Mm -hmm. And the thing about understanding is you need a context to understand it against. Yeah. And so if data is removed from its context, th there is no understanding. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just in communication, when you're having a conversation with someone else, the personification is unnatural and it feels unnatural after a time with AI that has been, you know, written or created or generated without contextual grounding. Right. And, you know, that's part of what I have been really trying to solve with the vast AI technology is engineering that understanding and that grounding using graph models or ontologies. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this ability to ground the understanding is so both simple and complex. It's such an elegant solution. But when you ground data, you are codifying, you know, what you are understanding it against. And I can't say that enough. Just to take it up even a level, like when human beings use language, we are expressing so much of who we are. And when we are sending language, the tone, the intonation, yeah. the frequency that we use particular words, you know, what types of words. And now, now we got emojis too, you yeah, know? I mean, and emojis. I mean, like, all of this is expressive and data, you know, the word data comes from do or dare from Latin, which means to give. Mm. What are we receiving in return? And reciprocity, reciprocal relationships, mm. this is how nature works. This is mm. how our ecosystem works. And I think that, you know, it, it's such a massive imbalance. And I, I do think that it, it has nothing to do with technology. I think it has everything to do with, you know, what I was talking about before, where we have given people massive amounts of power in the sense that we've given them massive amounts of money mm. without holding them accountable. Right. What did we expect? Yeah. <laughs> really, what did we expect? Right. And so the nature of accountability is that, 
you know, in the nature of our world is that nothing is free. Right. You know, there's always, you know, there's always an accountable kind mm -hmm. of system in play, regardless of, and we're talking probably in my brain a little bit more on, you know, the ecosystem level or yeah. a, a spiritual level, but there's so much that I see in young people where they don't, you know, it's almost like I grew up and I think you grew up in the same era where it was like very much materialism. Mm -hmm. You can watch like the, you know, the videos in the eighties and the nineties and you're like, oh, holy crap. <laughs> like, I can't believe I survived that. <laughs> but, you know, the, I think that the pendulum is swinging back and the young people today, I see couples working together, you know, mm -hmm. men, you know, pushing up their wives because they know that their wives have more earning power than they do right now. Yeah. Yeah. I see people not being able to afford a house because they have all of these student loans that did not give them the ROI on their education. Right. You know, so mm -hmm. we have these larger problems that are looming. And I do think that we can use AI to make the world a little bit more fair. And because AI is a listening tool and we can see things. So how do we use it and be curious about it? and understand how it works, put your own data in, understand what part of that data is used to predict what. Use language to understand what are you codifying? What are you giving? What are you showing? What are you sharing? Yeah. You know, and that's where I think I want people to go beyond. And I think last time I came up and I said, when people start using generative AI, it takes them about three months to realize that it starts to lie to them. Yeah. I'm going to give you another prediction. I think that once people start using AI that they build themselves, it's going to take very short amount of time for them to start asking and say, hey, what information did Google have about me to give me this ad? Right. Right. What information did YouTube have about me in order to show me this video? Right. What information did they have about my child to show them that video? Yeah. Yeah, that's it's really what I, that's what yeah, I want to see. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, I like that you're getting in the scenario based thinking about the future is generally where I land with a lot of this stuff where there's some positive stuff you're portraying here, as I understand it, where maybe there is a future where we can train our own AIs and rather than have one size fits all really one size in reality fits none. Instead, I'll have something that's a little more tailored to my needs and solving my problems. Starting with enterprise, that all sounds like there's some upside to that. There's a lot of risk. And then there's probably some weird curveballs that are going to come at us one way or another. Looking ahead five years, 10 years from now, any scenarios out there, any speculative sci fi stuff that you might want to put out there around where this stuff might good, good, bad, weird, whatever you yeah, think I, might I, be relevant? Right. I think it allows us to explore things that we don't have names for yet. And remember, before Newton, we had no name for gravity. Things just fell to Earth. We didn't right. know why. Right. We should be exploring the nature of our reality hmm. and the nature of where we put our attention. And all of this generative AI is based on attention models. There's a reason <laughs> that we need to think about where we put our attention. And there's a reason that all of this comes up at this time. So I think that my 
you know, my version of the future is that our children are going to have to solve massive problems. 2.6 billion climate refugees, billion climate refugees by the year 2050 in our lifetime. Our children will need to solve these problems. What are we doing to prepare them in order to, we borrow this earth from them. So what are we doing to prepare them for that future? Yeah, it reminds me of the old Malthusian thing too, where people back in the day, I think it was Thomas Malthus was saying, we're going to mm -hmm. run out of food, but then <laughs> all the innovations have happened That's right. and there is That's some right. advances that happen. So it's almost like when these new capabilities emerge, it's easy to forget that they can be leveraged against some of these really massive, I mean, protein folding is the other one that I come back to yes. where had we not had these new technologies helping us think better, augmenting mm -hmm. human capabilities, we wouldn't have had those breakthroughs. Healthcare is really a place where, you know, AI has probably made the most impact already. We're wrapping up here, Beth. Always amazing to have you. We'll have to figure out how to get you your refrigerator magnet. It is well earned. <laughs> but as we're concluding here, any parting thoughts for our listeners? Also, it's Bass.ai. If folks want to check out the name of the book is AI for the rest of us. We'll include all that in the show notes for the episode. But any concluding thoughts about that as we wrap up here today? I'm always interested in any connection. And I believe very strongly in the connecting with people. So please contact me. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to learn what you think and know and hear your story. Beth Rudden is someone we'll be hearing from, and I don't mean a postcard. Check her out. We'll include her information. It's a place where I'm getting a lot of really great insight and you know curated articles that really get you an insider's take on where a lot of the generative AI stuff and its biases are going. Beth Rudden, thank you so much for joining me on today's show. Very welcome. Thank you, Michael. And for our listeners, hope you enjoyed what you heard. If you did, please subscribe. Tell your friends, do all the good things. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education.